Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we've got a special bonus episode. We're dropping on Saturday because it is Ideas Birthday. That's right. Michael Larson, greatest to ever do it. I'm calling up his mom, my friend, Kathy Averill from Crush Girl Recordings. We're going to talk all about his music, his legacy, and everything she's done to keep his name alive in our hearts and minds. So happy birthday, my friend, Michael. Hello? Hey, how's it going? Oh, fine. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Just got changed and ready to go. <laughs> Sometimes you get people come in the last 10 minutes when you're trying to close, and I... I didn't have anybody today, so it was lucky. Oh, nice. Well, how you been? Well, I've been fine. How about you? Pretty good. You know, it feels it feels good to be grinding the music thing a lot less. You know, I, yeah. I slowing down and just doing things for fun instead of for advancement of career. It's it's been kind of nice and spend more time with the lady and taking it easier. Oh, that's good. I saw you were in Texas. I was, yeah. That was kind nice. of random. Had the opportunity that I couldn't turn down and and uh, gave it a shot. And it was a fun, really fun weekend. Oh, that's good. Good, good, good. It's always fun. Texas is a good place. Yeah, I was... And Blueprint was there. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. He was like... Uh, I was in San Antonio, and I saw... Because the thing I had to do was just in like the morning and the afternoon, and I was thinking, what am I going to do all night? And sure enough, Blueprint put in his Instagram story that he was coming to Austin. I'm like, that's an hour away. I'll be there. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was really nice just to catch up. I hadn't seen him in a minute either, so. Yeah, that's nice. I'm uh, glad you agreed to do this so last minute. I just thought Michael's birthday coming up this week, we could throw together uh, a little bonus episode a little tribute since i never got you on the idea tribute episode that we did at the five year uh, um, you know i, I made my true. made my rounds that night but uh you were very busy running the show so um kind of making up for it a little late <laughs> yeah, i'm always running the show so who cares? <laughs> yeah well and if if anybody doesn't know crush kill recordings started by idea what year was that, like 2006, seven, something like that? I honestly could not tell you. Um, yeah, probably five, six. Okay. Crush Kill has continued to be uh, owned and operated by Kathy and Brady O'Rourke. So, um, you know, when you... When you okay, Kathy and Brady don't have the same last name. No. We're not a couple. Well, no, but I... make that clear. I will have... <laughs> I, I will have introduced you properly off air before we started, so I will have said your name, and now I'm adding him to the equation, but yes, they're not a couple. <laughs> yeah, we had Brady on that um, tribute episode talking about it a little bit, but um, no small part of keeping this whole thing alive. I've, I've really uh, enjoyed working with you and, and, and watching you work, because there's so many people that I think could take some lessons from uh, professionalism, punctuality, having a schedule, being organized, you know. Like when we did the the World Has No Idea tour and you took the reins after it had been partially booked and you took over. When we left, I've never had anybody give me 
and and each artist on the roster. Okay, here is your binder with every show detail, the load in time, you know, miles to the next city, everything we needed to know. Uh, you know, it was just great. So anytime we do an event together, I I really enjoy it because I know what to expect. Everything runs smoothly. And, uh, Nothing ever runs smoothly, dude. Come on. Well, uh, well. <laughs> Relative to other shows that start an hour and a half late because they felt like it, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't fuck around with that stuff. So. No, no offense. I don't run on hip hop time. I don't run on Johnson time. I don't run on Michelle time. I run on real time. Exactly. So, <laughs> I I guess I wanted to dig a little bit into. I mean, you were always around for. E&A tours and stuff like that uh, to arrive at this point now being label owner promoter the mini hats that you wear what did that genesis look like from you going out to support to participating more and actually getting involved with the, like the E&A shows for example what was your role there well it all depends my role was I'm you know, first and foremost, Mikey's mom. Yeah. And so it was basically whatever he needed. It wasn't necessarily to be um, intrusive or overtake anything, but it was, you know, if he needed to go for dinner, then we went for dinner. If he needed to have a hotel somewhere else, we got a hotel somewhere else. If he needed whatever, he needed to go to banks or we needed to start bank accounts on the West Coast or the East Coast or whatever, then that's what I did. And now I do that too. I just don't do it, you know, for him or with him. Yeah. I, mean, I never was, I mean, I know everybody would say I'm extremely overbearing and <laughs> that I would always stick my nose in everything. And um, there were a lot of times they didn't like some of the things that I did. That's for sure. But I wouldn't consider myself like one of those, um, you know, talent moms, you know, the yeah. you hear about all the time where they make their kid practice or do this or go to this audition or do whatever. I was more, Mikey would say, this is what I need. And I'd say, okay, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Or, you know, um, but even like when he decided he wanted to eat healthier and stuff, you know, I packed a big whole suitcase full of food. And, you know, that went out on tour with them and stuff. So, and sometimes I'd drive and sometimes I'd pick up cars and sometimes I'd pick up people. And I don't know that it was setting me up for this type of stuff, but it's all kind of the same. Yeah. You know? I mean, did you actually go out on the road with them? I went to a lot of places and a lot of shows. Mikey took me a lot of places at all. Um, and as he got more and more notoriety or whatever um he would fly me out instead of me driving that's somewhere. nice <laughs> and so i the last couple of years we went to scribble we flew and i told everybody he was spoiling me because you know he was just flying me to san francisco and flying me to new york and flying me to scribbles and flying me places and stuff you know that's got to be great i mean you've obviously would have observed you know, from we've heard the the early recordings, so I mean, we know that he was mad talented from a very young age. But to start to see that success for him, that must have been surreal for you. Yeah, I mean, 
I always believed, even before he did music, that he was going to do something that was um, affected a lot of people. And I used to tell him that. And so it was good to see that something he loved, he was becoming well known for and able to pick and choose and make a living instead of, like, all of us having to work a regular job. Yeah. So I remember... Uh when he started to get some success, like with the Blaze Battle and stuff, that he actually turned around and reinvested in, gave back to you, putting he you back to school. For me to go to college. Yeah, that's fucking amazing. Yes, I, yes he did. <laughs> we had a deal. I had to go to school and not work, and he would pay for everything, and he did. And I got two degrees. Not that I used them, but... <laughs> Yeah, but that's great. I mean, there's just a symbiotic support like that, you know. You know, you had his back in taking a leap of faith and pursuing something that has a pretty low success rate, but you believed in him, and in turn, he took the first opportunity to uh, believe in you right back. You know, it's, it's, all, all the stories that you've told me over the years, just uh, it's an atypical relationship, I'll say. You're supporting his path, and he's supporting you right back. I would agree that it's not the normal um, parent-child relationship. Um, and it was never a friendship. Yeah. I never considered him my friend. He never probably considered me his friend either. I mean, not at all. <laughs> but, but we were extremely more than friends and more than parent and child. Because most parents want you to do something that you're good at and that you're passionate about, but that's going to make you money and so that you're out of their house by 18. Yeah. That's typically how, I mean, that's how I was raised. I was out of my parents' house, 17, 18. My sister was out, my brother. I mean, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to be in a secure place and explore your passions or your gifts. Yeah. And a lot of people, I don't think, get to know them until they are later in life. You know, when they're in their 30s or 40s and they're figuring out this job that I've been doing for the last 20 years, I hate. Yeah. You know? I mean, it happens a lot. And I think that is the difference in our relationship and the way that I raised him is that it was more of, a, you know, a supportive thing both ways. Yeah, I really related to that because, I mean, from when I was nine years old playing in talent shows, you know, my parents let me get everybody to practice in our living room and drive everybody to stuff. And that never stopped, you know, to this day, I'm 34 and they still, to my most recent show, came out and hung out to the end and bought shit from Carnage, you know, because he was out on tour. And, you know, they just, they love being a part of it and, and seeing it evolve through the years, you know. So I've always uh, related to that um, whenever, I mean, it feels like a family gathering when we do the Crush Kill events, whether it's in the Twin Cities or in Austin or, or whatever it is, you know. You're the rap mom. <laughs> but it feels, it feels familiar to me, you know, because yeah. uh, I, I lucked out in having that too, that I can go up on stage and, you know, sing crazy songs and say, you know, yeah, well, fuck you too to the whole crowd. And my parents are like, God, oh, that's great. I'm going to wear his T-shirt, you know. <laughs> so what do you remember about 
when it started becoming real, like let's say when Firstborn comes out, you know, he's got a legitimate album on the heels of the Blades Battle success and everything. What do you remember about getting that music and, and I mean, did you guys sit down and listen to it together like the first time when it came out or? No. It, I had heard it every day for a really long time, for two years probably. So no, we didn't sit down. When the very first printing came out, we were at Scribble Jam. And yeah. It was in August. Um, I think Dress gave me a copy of the, oh, here's a copy of it. And I never even opened it. Never even, I mean, there would be, I mean, I heard it every day constantly. Yeah. So we've never sat down on any of the CDs um, and said, oh, let's listen to this, because I heard them constantly. You know, that's, and that's funny. we cause... talked about them constantly, so there was no, like, here's the final product. It's, it's funny, because my relationship with Ange is like that. Because my wife hears all the shit for months while I'm working on it. You know, when it comes out, I'm like, hey, you want to check it out? She's like, haven't I heard every possible version of this? <laughs> Versus right. my parents yeah. haven't heard any of it. And so my mom will be, oh, you got the CDs today? Like, I, I want the first one. I want to check it out because she's never heard any of it. So I guess it's totally different when the record's being made in your house like it is here. Right. <laughs> and people always ask, how could you sleep? through all of it and stuff and it's like well I got to a point where you just tune it out you don't listen to it I if I heard something different like a door slam then I'd wake up or if I heard yeah. fighting I'd wake up but you know hearing music and hearing them go over the same line 900 times and <laughs> you know changing this and moving this and tweaking this but nope never and besides that when Mikey started playing the piano in Junkie he used to make me be the one that practiced with him and stuff so I never, even when he did karate, I was his practice dummy. So it was like, you know, I don't need to see any of this. I don't need to watch any of this. I've seen it. I have physically been involved in it all, even though I had nothing to do with any of it. <laughs> yeah. You're hearing it. You're seeing it incubating. You know that he's on on the path. And um, how quickly were they, like, selling out shows and playing regionally and then go internationally I mean did that just um, snowball around the time of that record well, or you know years ago when Slug wanted to tour he wanted you know to taken a couple of different DJs out <clears throat> over the years and a couple of different hype men out over the years and so eventually at one point in the late 90s early 2000s I don't know when um Mikey and Max were those people. And yeah. So they would do atmosphere stuff, and then they would do one or two things of theirs. And then eventually they broke off and did their own, and atmosphere went and did you know their own, although they still would tour together and stuff. Um, so I don't really know like when it all went from one point to another point. It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of meshed together. It was such a crew back then. Like, all of my memories of E&A shows are also atmosphere shows or also soul position shows or, you know, like, it, every time one of them came through, it was like a, just a rhyme sayers was coming, you know? <laughs> right. And it was just everybody. Right. What do you remember about when, like, 
Carbon Carousel and Face Candy and some of these other projects that are much more just, I mean, not necessarily solo endeavors, but more built on his own. I know that at one point he was getting tired of hip-hop and wanted to do more things and other things, which is why he started Carbon Carousel. And the face candy, he wanted it to be more in the moment, so that's why it was the free jazz. Um, There was never anything written. It was never played twice. It was, you know, if you saw it or you have the CD, that's what it was. It was never going to be again. And was just because I think he was becoming disillusioned with the being boxed into one genre. Yeah. You know, he wanted to do music, and it didn't necessarily have to be hip-hop. Were you at all concerned when he's doing this stuff and there's backlash, and then he starts the whole idea is dead thing? I mean, he, he must have had some difficulty trying to he's trying to break out of this box but people still just want to see the one thing i mean we're uh what was that period like for him in terms of uh yeah i mean even when i met him touring on uh, by the throat he was not excited about rapping at that time you know and it it just sort of seemed like no, he was very disheartened at people. There was a point, you know, where I took over his email because he was getting, like, death threats and people were throwing golf balls at his head. And it hurt him really, really deeply and really, really badly that people treated him like that. It wasn't nice. I took over his emails. I wouldn't let him see emails. You know, it was like, no, nope, you don't need to hear this shit. These people are stupid. This is crap. That's crazy how you can go from being so revered and beloved. They're like, oh, you're not delivering the one thing that I want, then fuck off. You know, like, I, I have such a hard time with that. You know, I mean, I'm, even if somebody gives me something I don't love, I'm still interested in the process and, and where it's going, you know? Like, I have the tendency to defend people, even if they make something I don't like at all. I will commend the shot that they took and and stand up against people that go, oh, the new so-and-so is trash. I never got that mentality of uh, just dismissing someone who's meant something to you for all this time. I mean, there's got to be a sense of betrayal in that when you're the one in the crosshairs. I know he felt it really. It hurt him, like I said, really deeply, and he felt really bad. And, you know, as a parent, um, you don't know exactly what to do. You know, it's like, well, I want to shield you from these people, but, you know, you're also an adult and have to make some of your own decisions. And all I can do is be there and support you and go to the Carbon Care shows and go to the Face Candy shows and tell everybody they should go and that's what you can do. Yeah, I mean, you've just got to, push through, you know, because you're not always going to be doing that peak work that everyone loves. And I feel like I know it when it's happening. <laughs> you know, I obviously in his case is a more dramatic example because there's actual 
like you said, people sending threats and throwing shit at them, you know, but uh, I mean, really all you can do is if that's who you are and this is what you're going to do, push through and, and persevere, you know, by the time that they got to buy the throat, it really was a great marriage of all of the things wrapped into one, you know, it was raw, but it was refined. It was melodic, but it was gritty. It had like some of the fast rapping, but it had some of the really poignant, heartfelt stuff that, you know, people continue to quote, tattoo or make artwork, you know, based on those things uh, to this day. I mean, I, I, it's one of those rare records where like you listen to somebody's first, their second, their third, you know, each one can be its own thing or it can be a linear evolution. But it's so rare that you get that one thing that kind of embodies all styles and things that they've tried before. I feel like that's what that record was. And I, I know that, um, you know, we would have heard many more amazing things. But for that being the last ENA record, I think almost I, I would think of it like the Sublime record or something. Like they tried so many bold things, mixing styles, and that for that to be the, the swan song is really a, an impressive piece of music. I mean, what is it like interacting with fans and like the events that we've done, whether it's the five year or the South by Southwest showcase or any of these things at Cherokee Park, what is it like when people come up to you and they tell you what these lyrics meant to them or the songs meant to them or I got this tattoo? The way that his art has allowed him to transcend life and, and continue to be such a presence in everyone's life. I mean, what is that like having those interactions with, with strangers at these events? Well, you know, I mean, they're good and bad. I mean, it's really nice and wonderful to see all the things that still progress, even though so it's so many years later, or if somebody has really felt that um, something spoke to them and it um, helped them become a better person and be more positive and move the world forward um, in a more productive manner, it's wonderful. And then um, it's horrible because my child's dead. Yeah. I mean, the world is yes and no. So yes, it's a beautiful thing. And no, it's not. It's a horrible thing. And I have looked at the world as a yes and no person most of my life. And most of the kids and my friends and all that stuff, when they ask me a question like, you just did. They know the answer is going to be both sides. It's going to be that the positive, wonderful things that come, have come about and the sad, irritating thing that made them come about. Yeah. But it, it, it is always um, wonderful and horrific. Um, at different points of time and different days of the week and different hours of those days, it is a good thing. And then usually later when I process it, it is a bad thing. Yeah. But, you know, um, you acknowledge it, you accept it, and the world's moved on. And it has. Even in this conversation, it's already moved. I wonder that when we do these events, because, uh, you know, there's so much love 
and celebration at times. But I can also tell there are times that it's, um, you know, it's harder for you. And I, I wonder, do you think about the future of Crush Kill and of these events? I mean, you have done so much more than anybody could have possibly pulled off. You know, I, I continue to be impressed with uh, each of these uh, these events and and this great roster of of artists that I've been lucky to work with over these years. But I mean, do you see an end in sight for this? Like you are, you know, putting yourself through all this, reliving it over and over by doing them? Again, yes and no. <laughs> I had said earlier on that, you know, I would do things the first five years, um, every year, do specific things. Yeah. And I did that. Now this is coming up, well, it's actually past the nine years, although yep. I didn't cremate Mikey until his birthday, so he still, still would have been hanging out for a few more days. But I do think that I will continue to do things at least for several years to come. Yeah. More on benchmark years, you know, fives, tens, twenties, thirties, fifties, you know, that type of stuff. When I donated a kidney, those guys told me I'm going to live well into my hundreds. So, (laughs) you know, I got probably another 60, 70 years around. So I can do things forever if I want. Yeah. And I do want to try to eventually me do less and have somebody else do more. Yeah. But I would like to do, you know, there's still a lot of music. There's still a lot of video. There's still a lot of um, notebooks. I've found writings of the different, like, albums, like Firstborn, E&A. By the throat, that type of stuff. Maybe I want to put them together and put some kind of book out. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of things. And yes, it's difficult to relive them, but I'm living in the same house with all of this stuff. So if I don't do something with all of this stuff, I think that's worse. Yeah. If it were me in his shoes, I'm a paranoid person, and, and I might have said this on another show, but when I fly somewhere, I, I keep all of my current projects just open on my desktop and stuff. Like, if anything happens to me, I want this to see the light of day. I I labored over this, and I want people to hear it, you know. And I think, you know, it's awesome uh, w- what you have done in, uh, you know, whether it's Many Faces of Mikey or the Then and Now DVD. If anybody hasn't checked out these these projects, I mean, this great unreleased uh, well, I guess now now it's released, but great unreleased stuff. I mean, Grand Six Sense, you know, the early ENA stuff. I mean, there's there's really just a, a treasure chest of of stuff, and and on top of that, the uh, the documentary. I mean, it's a pretty cool milestone to have as a a tribute. You have a movie in your name. You know, I think that that is a real testament again to the fact that even though there's no more records coming we still can't get enough and we want to hear those stories what do you remember about getting that movie made oh my god (laughs) well (laughs) it was a lot of work and it took a lot a long time to convince me to do it to let them do it because that's not how it started 
nobody knows or pays attention to how this started. So I wanted to make a DVD to go along with the many faces of Mikey. Yeah. And I wanted to take footage that I had from when he was out doing Oliver Hart, because that's the, you know, the many faces of Mikey is the yeah. other version of Oliver Hart, right? So I had all these things on different kinds of medium, like, um, you know, old um, VHSs and then some of the little eight millimeters. And, you know, it wasn't always the same type of whatever. And Brandon went to film school and did all that type of stuff. And so a friend of mine introduced me and said, you know, you ought to let him help you and this and that. And so he offered to help me. And so he was going through all this footage that I was having him put together. And he was like, you know, if you just throw in a couple of interviews, you've got this huge documentary. It'll be great. People will love it. Yada, yada, yada. I'm still thinking I want to do Oliver Hart or, you know, the many faces of Mikey. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking, well, you know, since that's the footage that I want to use, I guess, you know, Phil was out and Terrell was out or, you know, Los Notivos and Carnage. They were out during Oliver Hart and, you know, and if I threw in a couple of friends, sure, maybe, I don't know, okay. So I continued to think of the era that Mikey made Oliver Hart. Yeah. And that's where that came from. And then Brandon said that, you know, well, you should put in some people that are going to, you know, continue the crush kill and Mikey's thing and stuff like that. And so that's where that came from. And then there was a movie um, that was like two and a half, three hours long. And I was like, you can't put out a movie that long. That's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. And so, you know, he got it cut down and it still was too long, and I was like, you gotta cut it down an hour and a half, hour and a half, and it's still over an hour and a half, it's like an hour 40 or something, or an hour 50, I don't know what it is, but yeah. that's how it came about. I think it's interesting how, I mean, a lot of collaborations can start that way, that it's it's one idea, and it morphs and changes and changes and evolves and snowballs, and soon enough you have this, uh, you know, big thing that was completely different than you imagined, but that thing ends up reaching people, you know, and uh, I've never played shows like the ones I did on that tour for the film where, I mean, people are, uh, they're so enthusiastic, they're so emotional, they're so, I mean, obviously I had my own family tragedy on that same tour and, uh, you know, people would just come up to you and tell their deepest secrets and and the things they were going through and they would hug you and cry with you and celebrate the music and tell their favorite idea stories and oh when I went to see ENA in 2005 and we met and what well, you know and uh it was just they were the best crowds and so even though if that project may not have been what you envisioned I'm really happy that it did happen because just the way that uh, it affected people was uh, something to be seen. I agree. I think it turned out great. I think Brandon had, uh, you know, a good idea and, um, you know, um, process of what he wanted to show and how it would um, 
be received, and I think it, it does really well. I think it speaks to a lot of people, hopefully, and hopefully um, a lot of people will continue to, you know, show it off or show it around or, you know, that type, share it with others. I mean, I hope, same thing with all of Mikey's music and the poetry books and stuff. I hope people do, but, you know, here's my yes and no, I'm, you know. Yes, I hope they do, but I don't have an unrealistic view of that's going to be forever. I get the, you know, for now, I, I'm i just happy that they do. Yeah. I think that his music, his legacy, it'll continue to endure in those of us who were there and grew up on that music. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that... Uh, Always so nice one day they're the oldies channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, the music will live on in those of us who, uh, you know, who were there to experience it. And I mean, you, we've already seen it being passed down to younger generations and stuff too, which is great. But um, I, I don't want to keep you all night. I just wanted to uh, chat for a little bit. And um, my most mind-blowing experience with Michael was not actually first hearing his music, seeing him on Blaze Battle, having my mind blown. It was not dissecting these lyrics with my friends and couldn't believe that we were hearing something so profound on this little underground rap CD. And it was not seeing the most incredible freestyles I've ever witnessed in my life, but it was when we met and he was just the most genuine, caring and loving, passionate person. Now, when I met you, it was exactly the same. I've always just, I've really felt appreciated and, um, and seen and respected, uh, whether I was with him or with you. And, uh, you know, it just, it made so much sense in getting to know you of like, that's where that came from. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. All right, that is our show. I wanted to keep it short and sweet, respectful of Kathy's time. I just kind of had this idea last minute, like, ah, we really ought to do something today. I know she's got an event going on in Minnesota, but I wanted to do a little something as well. So thanks to Kathy for uh, taking a little bit of time to reminisce with me. And again, I, I can't overstate the amount that ideas music influenced me but also that domino effect i guess i should say starting the illusionist meant that i met michael that supercharged me i was burned out i had failed at my goal of you know uh, my band had not made it and broken up even worse so hip hop was just a way for me to vent my frustration it wasn't anything deeper than that and seeing someone who I've witnessed perform at the top tier of what's even possible and I've seen it with my own eyes and have that guy come up and tell me that he liked what I was doing just from the sound check get to talk about music and get to work on music it it, it changed my life so what I didn't prepare for this interview is what I will drive home right now, and that is that idea did change my life, and I owe a lot of the last nine years of where my career has gone just to that little 
vote of confidence being seen and respected by someone who to me was just a creative giant you know from another planet and so i will continue to sing his praises and share his music and make my own little tributes i will leave you tonight with a song that appears on my most recent album featuring blueprint from columbus ohio and we did a little homage to the powdered water birth of a fish from the uh firstborn record that blueprint was actually featured on and it's called cubicle Every beat until I'm not Took a strategic pause It made me appreciate the fact that I'm achieving my daydream Though it may seem impossible to conquer I'm an honor what you thought that I could offer If someone grew up in a studio with records that suggested They would only know the studio and not the world outside And anyone outside the studio interprets information As the artist or reflection of the artist deep inside You're the one inside the studio Then you know that we're learning and observing And repurposing a different point of view Whether you grew up in a studio or cooped up in a cubicle This one's for you Yeah, this one's for you Home sweet home, back to make beats and rhyme here Invest in self, spend money and time here It feels like I've spent almost half my life here And if it's up to me, I'ma probably die here, for real That's why it feels so heaven sent Cause this is as close to church as we'll ever get If people don't pass the plate, we don't pay the rent So I swore on my rhyme book to represent And still play shows even when I'm feeling sick Even when Spotify won't pay a cent On rainy days, I still saw the silver lining In the middle of the storm, I was still rhyming Wearing a suit used to seem more suitable Until I saw life from outside my cubicle Full of flaws, but still so beautiful If all else fails, we got the studio If someone grew up in a studio with records that suggested They would only know the studio and not the world outside And anyone outside the studio interprets information As the artist or reflection of the artist deep inside You're the one inside the studio, then you know that we're learning And observing and repurposing a different point of view Whether you grew up in a studio or cooped up in a cubicle This one's for you, this one's for you